Hello and welcome to the Culture Swally, a podcast dedicated to Scottish news and pop culture. My name is Nicky and I'm joined, as always, by the man who, after watching what we're going to be talking about today, immediately changed his PIN number. It's Greg. How are you today, Greg? Uh, good. I'm very good. Uh, like I said earlier, uh, my voice is a little deeper today because I succumbed to the lifelong addiction of having a cigarette yesterday after weeks and months of not touching them at all. Um, a couple of drinks last night, and because I was sitting outside in the sun, in the warm air, other people were smoking all around me. I'm a weak man. Oh, the evil weed, Greg. The evil weed. We succumb to it all. Uh, yeah, I. Well, I've been the same. I, I used to smoke and occasionally still do. But we went on to heats. I'm not oh, sure yeah, if you're familiar yeah. with that. It's the the little ones, yeah. Yeah. So my wife and I went onto those, and I uh, officially packed them in last week. Okay. I found it a lot easier to give up than cigarettes, but I have been a little bit irritable. Okay. So um, if I lose my rag with you okay. on this episode, then you'll know why. Yeah. No. I, when our mutual friend was here in Dubai a few weeks ago, there were some guys behind us smoking heats and our mutual friend expressed an interest so i so i asked the guys to give him a demonstration and he got to they, 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 okay. they let him have a wee smoking one um but this they, they smell they mm. smell like they don't, they don't smell terrible don't they like, not that smoking smells lovely but you know no but you don't smell from them yeah. they, they give off they smell themselves in terms of when you're burning them yeah uh, if you're in an if you're in an enclosed space they smell, uh-huh. but if you're outside and you have one and you come back in, you don't smell at all. Right, okay. Well, yeah, he was he was fair taken with them, but not taken enough to go and buy some, obviously. So, <laughs> Obviously, yeah. yeah. Our mutual friend used to always smoke... Uh, other people's cigarettes. Is that what you always to say? <laughs> other people's cigarettes, yeah. So, yeah, OPC, we used to call it. I think we used to call it OPF, but yes, for the... <laughs> yeah, OPC, Yeah, we'll call it, yeah. yeah you can't really say the, that word now, but um, it's a Scottish word for cigarettes but we do mention it a few times on this wally actually yeah, uh, <clears throat> oh well i'm sorry to hear that your uh, your voice a little bit scratchy well, but i'm sure it'll be fine your dulcet tones will still be lovely on the podcast tells me right i want to ask you a question right so i was in the car yesterday with my oldest daughter so she's a, she's a few months away from her 14th birthday uh, she makes my heart burst with pride because she's into all the same music that i was into and still into uh now and she plays the bass in a band with other girls and she's really good in the bass um and she said to me in the car yesterday she said dad what is your top three favorite albums and i was like oh, oh god i say i don't know that i could give you three um so no. so we spoke about it but i was telling her i said the thing is i said how I said when i was your age how me and my friends would have experienced an album is probably different to how my daughter experiences it because mm. we obviously we, we couldn't go on the computer and download an album or stream it or anything in the early 90s because the technology wasn't there so you would have to buy it you have to buy it or somebody would make you a copy i mean i can remember i remember like when in utero by nirvana came out and i bought it on cd and that night I went to bed a bit early. I put my headphones in. I turned the lights out, and I listened. And I just listened to the album. I didn't listen to it when I was doing anything else. I didn't listen to it when I was doing my homework or when I was playing my computer or whatever. I just listened to the album. And I remember doing that with most albums the first time I listened to them. And I don't really do. I don't really do that with albums anymore. I'll listen to them in the car, mm. or I'll listen to them mm-hmm. when I'm cooking or whatever. But I don't like when I was a kid. It was really important just to block everything else out. 
out and really experience it. Suffice to say, she, she now thinks I'm even fucking weirder than she thought I was already. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, you know, it was just, I don't know, it's just, it was a more, it was a more intense experience, I think. But anyway, you might be interested to know that her favourite album is Kill Em All by Metallica at the moment. And there's a band, I think she said they're called The Six or something like that. And she she describes them as basically like Slipknot, but it's all girls, so... Okay, sounds good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, how, how would you, you know, I mean, you and I are more or less the same age. I remember the the anticipation of a new album coming out and stuff. Mm. You know, how how would how would you kind of consume like the latest Oasis album or, or whatever it was back when you were like fourteen, fifteen? At the time, mm. um, go and buy it and immediately put it on, listen to it from beginning to end, and devour the liner notes. Yeah. Of in terms of what the album was about i i wouldn't be the case of you know so back in the day when we were buying albums you would have a single would come out before the album Mm -hmm. so let's say be here now for example that was an album i heavily anticipated coming out and i bought it the first day it came out and you would have had what was the was it do you know what i mean i think was the yeah i think the single from be here now so rather than i mean i think that's the first track on the album actually so rather (laughs) It's not like you would skip straight to that track, but I would, yeah, I would buy an album and sit and listen to the whole album from beginning to end and devour the whole thing and then start from the beginning. And and obviously then you pick out your favourite tracks and sometimes you would skip, but, you know, still to this day, if I'm, I think now this generation, you are more of listening to songs in kind of pockets. Yeah. But if I have my iPod on shuffle, for example, my iPod, I wish I still had my, I still have my iPod, but it's a bit broken. I need to see if I can get that fixed because I miss my iPod. <laughs> but oh, obviously all my music's on my phone. Yeah. But if I have it on shuffle and I hear a song from back in the day, my immediate thought is that when the song ends, I'm thinking it's going to go on to the next track yeah. from that album. Mm-hmm. But of course it doesn't. And that's, yeah. And I do think the youth of today miss out on that. Of, of listening to an album yeah because a lot of albums are produced in a linear fashion i mean one of my speak about your top three albums one of my favorite albums of all time is transatlanticism by death cab for cutie mm-hmm. and when you listen to that album the whole album is a story yeah it, the first song to the last song it tells a whole story throughout the album and you miss that if you're listening to it track by track Hey, I'm guilty of it. I do listen to my favourite tracks in that album occasionally, but it you know you miss the experience if you're just listening to it bit by bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you know because it's sort of how you discover the less, uh, I guess, the less famous songs of your favourite bands. You know what I mean? Because oh, um, but I think yeah, there's always like you know they, they would not so much now I don't think, but they would bands would release maybe three singles off of one album maybe four depending um they think definitely maybe i think oasis released obviously live forever i think they released columbia which is bizarre because it's a great song but it's a proper album track do you know what i mean it's not a single uh shaker maker supersonic uh maybe one other that i'm missing so like so you know like four or five songs off what that's almost half an album to be released as singles that's quite unusual i think normally it would be like two or three songs um yeah i think so Mm. and well that's the thing that's when you you find your favorite songs yeah i think when you're listening to an album and something that isn't been released as a single yeah totally when you're working your way through it it's yeah that's totally the way i could think of many albums that i would listen to that i I don't know now i'd have to go back and check in terms of were they released as a single Mm -hmm. but yeah 
so many albums that, that, that probably and again the first time you listen to a song might not be like oh, I don't really get that once you've listened to it like five six times suddenly you get it and you think fucking hell that is an amazing song mm-hmm. you know like it's often not obvious ones like um for be here now for example I don't know if they released um don't go away as a single I'd need to double check that but I don't, I, I don't think they did but that's it's probably one of my favourite Oasis songs. And yeah. Yeah. So I was kinda I think that's just I kinda moved on. I'd kinda moved off Oasis by the time Be Here Now came out. I remember being very excited for what's the sto- for what's the story. And I, I think if if you ask me which album I preferred between Definitely Maybe and What's the Story, What's the Story might pip it because there's like, almost every song on that album. I you know, I just think everyone's a banger. You know what I mean? Every single song. Mm. But I don't know, I, I sort of I think I kinda moved off Oasis by the time Be Here Now came out um you know i think be here now was my last kind of big oasis album like i and i'd love be here now i'm a big advocate of that album i think it is a fantastic album Uh, the whole recording of that is purely fueled by cocaine and if you listen to it it is a very cocaine heavy album it's so overproduced but it's so great there's so many good songs on that album maybe i'll maybe i'll I'll give it a spin there you go that's my recommendation you recommended a book a couple of uh, episodes ago so here's my album recommendation it's non-scottish but uh, be here now it's it's non-scottish and it's about 25 years old but next episode i'll recommend the proclaimers there you go aztec camera's latest number Hey, I, don't knock Aztec Camera. They're fucking brilliant. I was listening to our greatest hits just the other day. Yeah, I wasn't knocking them at all, but it's been a while since they released a single. <laughs> it certainly has been, yeah. Probably about the same time Danny Wilson released a single. As well. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, with all that, that current debate about the latest uh, pop pickings, <laughs> shall we have a look at the news this week? We shall. Okay. Okay. Cue the jingle. <laughs> Hello, this is the Outer Hebrides Broadcasting Corporation, and here is what's been going on in the news. Okay, Greg, uh, what have you seen in the last couple of weeks in Scotland that has caught your eye in the newspapers? Well, my first story is about a Greg's superfan, and this young lady isn't the first Greg's superfan that we've had in a story. If you remember last year, we had the girl with the Greg's tattoo on her hip slash arse, you might remember. Sort of difficult to tell exactly where in the body it was, but... um, this is uh, this is from the Daily Record on the quite an old story, the fourth of April. Oh no, sorry, it's a quite a new story because we're in April. Um, and this is uh, a Greg super fan. She's heading to Scotland to visit all two hundred and thirty stores as part of a sausage roll tour. Uh, this is Megan Topping. She claims to have eaten more than ten thousand Greg sausage rolls and will be touring the whole of the UK to purchase one in each of its. Uh, 2,078 bakeries. To visit the furthest north Greggs in Scotland at Inverness, she'll have to travel a 766-mile round trip from her home in Middleton in Manchester. The bartender says, The long journeys up and down to Scotland mean the challenge could take years to complete. She describes herself as completely and utterly Greggs mad and told the Hull Daily Mail, (laughs) I go to Greggs almost every day and have done for years. To be fair, she doesn't look like she goes to Greg's every day. She looks like she looks after herself. Oh, uh, okay. People think this is a bit of a joke, but genuinely, Greg's has been important throughout my life, and I'm so grateful it exists. 
It sounds crazy, but even if I'm travelling, the first thing I look for is a Greg's. I hope to hit every <laughs> single one and have booked some time off work later this year. So I hope to start making real progress towards completing my goal. Missed Hopping saved up to buy a £1,000 Hyundai i10 car in late 2020 and has called it the Greg's Mobile, which she plans to use for her tour. There's a picture of her on a t-shirt, which I guess she's printed herself, and it's they've taken two sausage rolls and made the shape of a crucifix out the sausage rolls, and they've got the Greg's logo below, but instead of saying Greg's on the Greg's logo, it says Amen. Um, I'm sure it's not official. It's what Jesus would have wanted. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's not official Greg's merchandise. Um, in 2016, Greg's had 239 stores in Scotland, but that number is higher now due to new bakeries opening as far north as Inverness for the first time last year. It's taken them to 2021 to get a, a, a Greg's in Inverness. That surprises me. Uh, so far, Miss Topping has visited every outlet in Manchester and Greater Manchester, checking off a dozen shops since lockdown ended last summer. She said, I just saved up for the car so I could make this epic sausage roll trek. I couldn't be more excited. I work a lot and I wanted to do something fun with my life so I thought sod it, why not? I think it will take a few years at least, but I'm game. She spends about £300 a month in Greg's, but despite this... What? I know, and I bet, I bet none of the sausage rolls she got were hot, because they never get a hot sausage roll at Greg's, they're always like tepid, and, they're not, and they won't heat them up for you either. She has a body mass index of 18.6 within the NHS 18.5 to 24.9 healthy range. She said mm. she does squats to stay fit, albeit... While eating a cheese and onion bake. I don't think that's true. Oh, Jesus. No. I think, she, I think she's at it. Um, our typical pre-work order includes two hot, hot sausage rolls. Yeah, good luck. A vegan sausage roll. A box of donuts. <laughs> and a steak bake. And if she feels like treating herself, she might also get a ham and cheese baguette. She said, the sausage roll is the best thing Greg's does, hands down. I love it fresh, out of the oven. It's still my favourite thing, going strong after all these years. They create one of the best recipes in the world. I've been eating sausage rolls since 2005. I have eaten around 10,000 in total, if not more. And now she cannot wait to get started on her tour of the UK. Miss Topping, who has even created a spreadsheet to keep track of her progress, said, (laughs) I'm looking forward to getting in the car and starting my road trip. I love it because I will be able to see so much of the UK, which I'd never have seen Otherwise, so that's uh, Miss Topping in her Greg's Mobile and her uh, sacrilegious Greg's T-shirt <laughs> touring Scotland, uh, eating sausage rolls. Now, fair play to her. You you read about these people that do football stadium mm-hmm. sort of tours that they have to visit every football stadium in Scotland or England or in the UK. She's obviously decided that Greg's is her mecca, and she wants to go and visit every Greg's in the UK. That's you have to have a dream. But so touring fo- fair play to touring her. football stadiums across the world is not going to leave you with heart disease, type B diabetes potentially. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, that's true. I mean, I think about what in February when I went to Glasgow and just walking up a couple of streets, I passed what maybe six Gregs. Yeah, so in the season. she's going to have her work cut out for her. That's quite a, a hefty, does she eat them there or does she, you know, because after a couple of sausage rolls, well, well, judging by her menu, she's obviously quite full. So <laughs> yeah. 
does she have to just buy them, keep them cold, and then have them for lunch or breakfast? Or does she eat them in store? Is that part of the criteria? Does she have to actually eat them in the Greg's store for it to qualify? I don't know. It's a. Uh... I mean, how does she prove? How does she prove that she's done it? She could just say that she's done it, and she's not got a photograph in every store with a sausage roll in her mouth. Yeah. Um. Or, or at the very least, outside the store. How do we know that she's that she's done it? Well, that's it. So are you asking her that that she has to take a photo in every Greg store with a sausage roll in her mouth? Yeah. That could lead to some strange followers on Instagram if she's doing that, Greg. So we don't want to condone that. She could, she could get a Greg's OnlyFans account and do erotic things with sausage rolls. Then she'll be then she'll be well, she'll be she'll be glad of a tepid sausage roll at Greg's if she's doing that sort of thing. No oven fresh ones. Well, she could make her she could make her petrol money back for that. I mean, especially if she's bought a car for a thousand pounds and she's driving from Manchester up to Inverness. I'd I'd be worried. I hope she's got AA or RAC membership for that. Yeah, I mean, I gotta be honest. Like when my when when we go home, um, like the first thing that my daughters want to do is go and get a Greg's. Like the first. Oh really? Thing, yeah. My oldest daughter likes a slice of pizza from Greg's, weirdly, and uh, my youngest daughter likes a sausage roll. So that's literally the first thing. Like, it's in, if we go, if we go into town, the first thing they want to do is go to Greg's. So. Oh, well, <sighs> it might wear off, and it might wear off of that woman. Greg, because you did mention earlier that we had a an article mm-hmm. previously on Swally about a woman that got her Greg's tattoo on her bum. Yeah, on her hip. So that was mum. It, it was on her bum. It was mum, Caitlin Jones, oh. 22, who hit headlines in 2020 when she decided to get uh, a Greg's tattoo on her arse to mark their reopening after lockdown restrictions opened. Uh, so this is from the Scottish Sun this week, Greg. And it is the same woman. It's a hairdressing student from Paisley. Right. And she said that she no longer goes to Greg's. Oh. Um, it's still her favourite food shop, but she said, I don't regret my tattoo. I forget I have it most of the time. I don't really eat Greg's anymore, but I do still like it. Nothing really stopped me. I just kind of had enough. Right. Uh, so, yeah, speaking at the time, she said, I'm obsessed with Greg's. I've always loved our sausage rolls. Before lockdown, I used to get one nearly every day, and I was absolutely gutted when they shut down. Uh, I was more bothered about Greg's reopening than the pubs. Uh, <laughs> we'll remember, I did look back on our old episodes, and I couldn't find which episode it was really? on. But, um, so, yeah, so she has come out. She's been in the press this week saying that, yeah, she's got her tattoo, but she doesn't really eat Greg's anymore. Uh, However, she does have a hugely popular OnlyFans account where nearly 40,000 subscribers see her sexy content. And they said, uh, giving fans a view of her bum on her TikTok, she couldn't believe that she was telling the truth. Um, Yeah. So that's a little update from an old news story. So the woman that got the Greg's tattoo doesn't really eat at Greg's anymore. Mm. That's a shame. Maybe she's trying to keep herself in shape for her OnlyFans account by the sounds of things. Possibly. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be unkind. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> but I'm going to be. Um, <laughs> she's not with the with all due respect to her. I can sort of see her in my mind's eye from the article because I think it was one of my stories. And I remember seeing her picture. Not the, yeah. Typically not the type of girl you would associate with having an OnlyFans account. Not that I've ever been an OnlyFans. This is all anecdotal. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know what I mean? But good, good, it, good um, it takes all sorts, Greg. It's um, different. Uh, she's, yeah, there's photos of her on the article with our Greg statue, um, I'm sure many people find her attractive. Well, good luck to her. <laughs> That's all I'll say.
The very best of luck to her. Um, anyway, what's your first story this week? Well, Greg, I unfortunately, I have to report that we've had some llama drama <laughs> in Dumbarton this week. Uh, so this is from the Daily Record this week. And Dumbarton residents have been thanked for their efforts to help rescue three runaway llamas who caused drama after legging over a wall. The troublesome trio, Rosa, Delilah, and Noah broke out of their enclosure at the old quarry at Overton and set off an adventure across the A82. It's like homeward bound (laughs) with llamas. (laughs) Uh, They were spotted traipsing around the streets of Dumbarton East, thought to have been lured to freedom by the smell of fresh grass. Uh, Owners Kevin McKay and Tracy Wood, who are hoping to open the Overton Llama Lodges this summer. That sounds amazing. It's like a lodge you can just go and visit llamas. Uh, Soon realised the pets were missing and set about trying to track them down following information from local folks along the way. I'm pretty sure you could spot three llamas. <laughs> I do, are, are llamas fast? That's, I need to want, need to check that, how fast llamas can run. Uh, pictures emerged on social media of the animals wandering around a residential street with locals scratching their heads as how they got there. <laughs> Kevin told how the scent of fresh grass appears to have tempted the animals away uh, and they scaled a wall. How the fuck do llamas scale a wall? It's not like they're Sylvester Stallone <laughs> in kind of um, in uh, what am I thinking of Escape Cliffhanger uh, Cliffhanger no he doesn't scale a wall he seals cliffs um, <laughs> anyway but uh, they went on to saunter across the busy A82 at the bemusement of passing traffic I'd be quite bemused as well if I saw a llama wandering about um, he said it was a, a huge community effort to bring them to safety with uh, the whole of Dumbarton East coming out to herd the roaming llamas. Uh, he said, yeah, we, we brought the old quarry in Dumbarton and I was uh, working there when I got a call from my neighbour and she said they saw them go past. Uh, they'd run from the quarry, which was a high wall, but it was a bit of a wall that they managed to climb. They are known escape artists and they can easily jump six feet. Llamas can jump six feet. Holy fuck. Who would have known that? <laughs> llamas are big, aren't they? But they're big animals, llamas, I think. Yeah, they're big, but would you think they could jump six feet? No, I did fact check that. They wouldn't usually be bothered about it, but I think they were attracted by the smell of grass and they had a wee toddle down the hill. A couple of young boys, not that type of young boys, I think it was young lads, uh, they tried to catch them. How young lads, would you really want to try and catch a fucking llama? <laughs> uh, they meant well, but the llamas got easily spooked, so they ran away and headed for the A82. Yeah, that's great. If you're spooked, head to a fucking major highway. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, the lights were red, so they managed to cross safely. Oh, yeah, because obviously they <laughs> obeyed by the highway code and they knew the green man was going. <laughs> to be fair, I've trained my dog to know that he stops when it's a red light and when he hears the green man, he gets up and he walks, oh, so right. it's fine. So maybe maybe he trade the llamas that way. On a mission to track them down, he said it was really stressful as we didn't know where they were. And they ran off and we were really worried about them causing an accident or getting hurt. But it was a real community effort and I want to thank everyone in Dumbarton East for coming out to help. I really want to thank everyone. There were people waving their arms in their garden and we got so many Facebook messages. Other people would try to block them so they couldn't get any further. Some people didn't realise what was going on. 
and they were just taking pictures of them. I think if I saw a llama walking down the road, I would probably stop and take a picture of it. Uh, one neighbour was great, and he drove out to help, and he was on the phone to his wife, who was also directing us. Uh, then he took me back to pick up a horse trailer, and then we caught them just at the cycle path. That's brilliant that the llamas are walking on the cycle path, though. I mean, it's unfortunate for cyclists, they're, but... They're, you know, they're, all, they're all wankers anyway, cyclists, aren't they? So fuck them. Well, yeah, well, Greg, I live in Amsterdam, so I can't really call any wankers. Uh, <laughs> okay. I can't really call cyclists wankers. <laughs> so um, in one image, a stunned resident can be seen standing in his front garden, watching in awe, uh, whilst a red Audi approaches one of the animals, which is standing in the middle of the road. <laughs> Two more llamas can be seen on the pavement, just watching from the street nearby. In another comedic picture... The three llamas appear to be seen chasing each other down the street in the town. They were just having a laugh and enjoying themselves. <laughs> Out of their pen. They're in a new town. They're just having a fucking laugh, just enjoying themselves. Uh, but yes, uh, Kevin added, we're relieved they're all safe and well. And he hopes the locals will be able to enjoy more of the new town celebrities if the lodge plans are approved. Oh, so the lodge plans haven't been approved oh, yet right. by West Dumbartonshire Council. So West Dumbartonshire Council, uh, we at the Swally would like to say, please, can you approve the Llama Lodge? I mean, come on, if you're walking down the street and you see a llama just wandering about, you're going to take a photo and be like, the fuck, it's a llama. I know, that's why the line locals stood and wondered what was going on there's a llama there that's what's going on do you know what I mean it's not it's not some complex puzzle that needs to be solved it's a few llamas they wonder what was going on do you think maybe it was an elaborate publicity stunt by the owners of the llama lodges to get some publicity and uh, get their approval, get their application approved by the council. You know, I didn't think about that, Greg, but you've made a very valid point there, <laughs> and you could be right. This is a elaborate ruse, isn't it? Yeah. They've let those llamas loose, and they've thought, right, we'll get a bit of publicity, we'll get in the daily record, we'll get this approved. How can they not approve this now? Well, because obviously you're not in control of your fucking llamas. Yeah. So why are we going to approve this llama lodge if we're going to have llamas roaming around Dumbarton all the time? We're rejecting it on the grounds of reckless llama endangerment by letting yeah. them out. What's going to be What's going to be next? We approve this and then next it's like, oh, we want the Dumbarton Tiger Sanctuary. <laughs> and then it's a fucking Joe Exotic <laughs> of Dumbarton all over again. We don't want that. We don't want those Netflix cameras coming to Dumbarton. That's a no-go. So I think he, he might have shot himself in the foot here. I always wonder what these exotic animals must, you know, if they've been... I mean, I suppose most of the animals that we have, like exotic animals that we have in Scotland in the zoo, they've probably been born in Scotland, maybe like three or four, third or fourth generation. But I wonder, like, when the Victorians and stuff would bring, like, elephants from Africa to, like, Glasgow, <laughs> I must wonder... <laughs> elephants going through the elephants' minds. What the fuck's happened here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the in the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery, they have got a stuffed elephant who used to live in Glasgow Zoo. I think is that an article there? I think he read that he, he lived in the zoo maybe like the thirties or the forties. And he lived there for years. And then one day, I mean, the, the the article puts it a lot better. But one day, the elephant basically tried to rape the elephant keeper and had to be shot right and he was they shot the they shot the poor elephant right in the right in the head right in the forehead so the stuffed 
version of him that's in the Kelvin Gove Art Gallery has got the bullet hole on the sort of whatever the elephant equivalent of forehead would be, just above the eyes, right in the middle. But yeah, basically shot for being Randy. But I always thought, well, he's he's a male elephant. Maybe he was the only elephant in the zoo. It's going to have urges. You know what I mean? Like, hmm. They should have, I don't know, they should have come up with some solution to sort him out. <laughs> you know, just like hire a professional elephant wanker to go in and keep him calm or something. And then maybe the, he wouldn't have tried to rape his handler. <laughs> so yeah, um, let's leave it there. Greg, what's your next story? <laughs> well, you know how I like a story about... Uh, I like a story where people claim to have seen ghosts and uh, we had one Mm. last week, the guy in the last episode claiming that he's got a haunted uh, doll and stuff. Well, my story this week is about the Loch Ness Monster, but it's not not a story about anybody claiming to have seen Nessie. It, It comes from the Scottish Sun, just at the end of March there. It says, Nessie lessons Scots pupils to be taught the Loch Ness Monster anti-Scottish. Social studies... Sorry? I know, right? Social studies students will learn how class structure had a role in creating the creature. They'll be taught the theory of how Nessie is a symbol of England's domination of Scotland, highlighting stereotypes and bias. The claims about the legend are in a 17-page lesson plan for modern studies and teaches secondary pupils what Nessie's portrayal in films says about the country's image and how it affects contemporary topics such as the independence referendum. According to the Daily Mail, the material created helps 11 to 14-year-olds recognise persuasion and bias and how the monster was designed as a tourist attraction for the middle class during the Depression. However, the theory has been slammed by campaigners who criticised the lessons as nationalist and brainwashing school kids. It's believed that the first sighting of Nessie, alleged sighting, dates back to the 6th century, but the Loch Ness Monster craze started in the 1930s with many alleged sightings and photos. The first film about the beast was called The Secret of the Loch in 1934. In the lesson plan, it explains that the idea of a prehistoric monster in the loch gives out a stereotype that Scotland is a rural wilderness compared to England. It continues, the monster's depiction suggests that although there was a primitive wilderness in Scotland before the state of Britain, the modern state has the ability to control it using advanced knowledge and technologies. Other films, such as 1996's Loch Ness, that's one with Ted Danson in it, you might remember that, and the night it's on my list don't worry <laughs> and the 1983 short film the Loch Ness monster movie will be evaluated in lessons education scotland told the daily mail through the study of films the resource encourages students to debate to analyze bias and understand the role film has played in shaping the global view of scotland it also seeks to support pupils in learning about the importance of respecting the heritage and identity of others i don't really have an issue with that I, and I, I quite like that last bit of about through the study of films, the resource encourages students to debate how Scotland's portrayed by Hollywood over the years. Mm. You know, because we've yeah. we've we've touched on it in some of the things that we've um, reviewed, like, like Braveheart and Rob Roy being two particular examples. I think uh, I remember some I remember some loose talk about doing Brigadoon at one point, um, <laughs> if you remember. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I think it's not it's not really what the beginning of this story has you believe believe it's going to be about no. you know what i mean now it's anti-scottish it's not at all i mean it's absolute it's absolute horseshit but um i don't know i mean i i would challenge anybody i would challenge even the most 
stoic disbeliever to drive past Loch Ness and not just have a wee look just in case. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of course. Nothing wrong with that. Why, you're going to look. You're going to have a look for Nessie. Yeah. If you're there. Of course you are. Yeah. Why is this? Why are you taking away our famous kind of animals and traditions? What's What's next in the hit list? Greyfriars Bobby. <laughs> I know. Saying that he was a racist <laughs> or something. Like, it's, it's, it was, it was, it was, it was anti cat. <laughs> Greyfriars, Greyfriars Bobby's anti cat <laughs> agenda. It's ridiculous. But, um, yeah, I can't see that. I don't know. I don't, with the Loch Ness Monster, we've debated this a few times, and believe me, that Ted Danson film is on my list <laughs> to do this year. It's, I've been... It's come up a few times that I've thought, will I do Loch Ness now? No, I'm going to save that. Oh, come on, it's Nessie. It, it's a absolute Scottish tradition. This is just... This has come up from England, hasn't it? Because they've got nothing. What well, have they got? St George's Dragon. <laughs> they, that didn't exist. They don't have it. Where's that? They don't have anything as high profile as Nessie, but there are countless English folk tales about fairies and beasts and all sorts going back. I'm not talking. I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking about mystical beasts. Jimmy Savile. <laughs> <laughs> mystical beasts, not literal ones. Um, you know what I mean. So they've got they've got quite a rich sort of folk tale um, uh, sort of tradition in England. So I like th- what? Name one. Name one apart from George and the Dragon. George and the Dragon. Well, Saint George's Dragon. That's a mythical. Saint George slayed the dragon. That was it. Well, uh, come on. There was name one English mythical beast. An English mythical beast. Um, You've just said they've got loads. Come on, I'm putting you on the spot here. There, there was not one. In, uh, what the beast of Bodmin Moor? Yeah, but there was also Broadmoor, and I don't mean in the hospital, but I'm sure like on the on the Broadmoor hills and stuff, there was there was stories about some massive sort of wolf type creature attacking sheep and things at one point yeah the beast of Bodmin Moor is that, is that near Broadmoor is it I'm, yeah I think uh, so yeah. yeah well there you go then this one you just answered your own question <laughs> But they don't have anything. As, okay. They don't have anything internationally famous that's endured for as long as the Loch Ness monster has. For no, sure. Well, come on. I mean, yeah. I mean, my uh, wife's mum, German, and she wants to go to Loch Ness, and she asked if you could see Nessie. It's a total international thing. For years, when I lived in Dubai, people would always ask me about Nessie. Mm-hmm. It's an international thing. I can't think of anything in England that they've got that is a they had, um, mythical beast. There was the one, it's not a beast, but they, there was the photographs of fairies at the bottom of someone's garden. I think they, I think they turned out to be fake. Um, well, obvious, <laughs> obviously. Um, but I think they were, they were, but they were, they were, they were found uh, to be like upstaged. But there was, there's some famous black and white photographs. I think they're from the sort of 30s, I think, of like some kids playing in the garden with fairies. Um, but, but one of the kids, when she grew up, and I think after her father had passed away she was like yeah not real <laughs> it was all just a bit of fun um so i would ask um because we have quite a lot of international listeners so if you can get in touch with us at culture swally pod on instagram or at swally pod on twitter or email us on at culture swally at gmail.com have you got any mythical creatures that would rival Nessie, the Loch Ness monster, it must be the most famous oh, yeah, monster definitely. in the world. Surely, I can't think of anything else that I mean, tops that. Wait, wait. When I was a kid, I did read in America, in some of the big lakes in America, they there's claims of mythical creatures living in them, but I can't remember the names of any, of either the lakes or what they called the creatures. Um, but it's, they're out there. It's the information's out there to be found. Um, 
But, I think the only other thing I could think of would be um is it is it America or Canada would be um Sasquatch. Yeah. Like uh, Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. Is is that in Canada or America? Uh, Bigfoot is I'm just I'm trying meant to have been seen. I'm trying to think of Bigfoot and the Hendersons with John Lithgow. I think that was America. <laughs> 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 well, that very famous photo of uh, Sasquatch being taken. Yeah. I can't remember if that was in in the Canadian uh, Henry. If you can, you let us know yeah. if that was in uh, Canada. in Canada or if it was in America. I don't know. That's got to be up there. Sasquatch and Nessie mm-hmm. have to be the two big famous kind of mythical creatures that yeah. aren't mythical because they both exist. Yeah, so on that little bit of uh, controversy, what's your next story this week? Okay, my next story this week, Greg, is about the uh, the announcement of the full list of Scottish baby names used in 2021 has been revealed. Okay. So whilst the more traditional choices like Jack and Olivia have proved to be popular baby names in Scotland, some parents have opted some more unusual choices. I'm going to go through the top 10 of female and male names. Okay. And then I'm going to give you some of the most rather random ones that okay. have been mentioned. So right. uh, the Scott top 10 male uh, baby boy names uh, were Jack, Noah, Leo, Oliver, Harris, Finlay, Lewis, James, Rory, and Alexander. Good Scottish names, I would say. Yep. A lot of those. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, females are Olivia, Emily, Isla, Freya, Ella, Amelia, Ava, Sophie, Grace, and Millie. Again, good Scottish names. Yep. Yeah. Agreed. Um, however, there have been some strange names in this uh, that have been registered last year in Scotland. So um, they also welcome baby girl names called B, Berry, Domino, Madge, Margarita, right. Rainbow, <laughs> and Royalty. Oh, for fuck's sake. Here, Royalty. Stop fucking about that remote control. Go over here, Royalty. <laughs> Like, uh, in the name of God, the boys' names are worse, Greg. Uh, so the boys' names include Tudor. I hope he's named after the crisps. Uh, <laughs> Tiger. Royal. Fury. Now, the last two are the worst. Someone has called their kid Wrath. <laughs> like, Wrath. Really? You know, if you're going to name him after one of the... <laughs> What's Wrath? That's one of the... Seven Deadly Sins. Disciples. Is it? Yeah, Seven Deadly Sins, yeah. sorry. And uh, some unfortunate child, and I can't believe... Surely they have some sort of um, legislation when they're kind of ticking off these names when you go and register them. Someone called their baby boy Mate. <laughs> <sighs> Other names, uh, pop culture inspired names, included Samwise, like Samwise from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I don't know, I've never seen it. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, Some unfortunate child in uh, Scotland got called Morpheus, <laughs> and there was even one child got called Kalel. For fuck's sake. Like, really, are you really wanting to fucking put your child through that? So, uh, there was a... In the article I read, they did have the full list. So I did double-check this, Greg. So in terms of Scottish baby boy names in 2021, there were only two babies called Greg. Only two? Born last year. Oh. Only two. And, ironically... There were only two called Nikki. Right, wow. So look at that. Yeah. I wonder, did did we influence that at all? Do you think? <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> sorry. 
making jokes about elephant wankers and stuff like that. That sort of humour, perhaps, put people off. I mean, uh, why would you call your kid Tudor or Wrath? Maybe his name. Wrath. He needs a fucking, he needs a strong name. He's (laughs) going to get bullied at school. So we're going to call him Wrath. And then the next one we're going to call Vengeance. (laughs) Yeah. Like. (laughs) The next one we're going to call Gluttony. (laughs) (laughs) The worst one has to be Mate. Yeah, I mean, I should. You're gonna call your kid mate. Maybe, maybe Tudor is named after Edward Tudor Pole from the Ten Pole Tudors in the Crystal Maze. Maybe like his mum and dad, well, big, 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 uh, big uh, Ten Pole Tudor fans, perhaps. I mean, and as for the girls' names, Domino. I mean, that just screams to me a couple of chavs that just like their takeaways. <laughs> And wrath. I mean, fuck me. Get up, get up the stairs, or you'll feel my wrath, my boy. (laughs) (laughs) What's this about feeling wrath? (laughs) And again, Morpheus. Why would you call your kid Morpheus when you're glowing up? Glowing up? (laughs) Maybe Morpheus does glow up. If you're growing up in a council estate in Glasgow, you're called Morpheus. Like, that's just... Ugh. Yeah, I know. You Apologies just... to any listeners that are called Morpheus, but <laughs> oh my days, that's a fucking... Uh. Morpheus is the sort of thing that people call themselves when they get old enough. What's your name? Oh, well, my name's Barney, but everybody calls me Morpheus. Yeah. <laughs> 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 You're just going to get the cunt taken out of you i mean you're gonna to have to grow up to be hard as fuck or you're just and yeah and like mentally tough it's a you know it's like the johnny cash song a boy named sue isn't it you know when he he, he finds his dad his dad like this the, the song is about how his dad called him sue and then fucked off and he finds his dad in the last verse and they have this big fight and his dad says well i, I called you sue so you would uh, grow up to be big and strong and have to fight and all that kind of thing so maybe Maybe, maybe that's what all these people have thought with their sons by calling them like Tudor and Wrath and Morpheus and mate. But then, you know, like if his name's Morpheus, what's he going to shorten it to? Morph. Like, <laughs> thank God, fucking Tony Hart's dead. Jesus. <laughs> what was uh, what was Morph's pal called? Who was the sort of? I was, you know, something. As soon as the word Morph left my mouth, I was thinking, what was Morph's mate called? I can't believe we're on the same wavelength there. Um, I cannot remember. If you, if you start, if you type what was Morph's, like, oh, Chaz. Chaz was his pal. Chaz? Yeah. Chaz. That was, that was Dave's mate, wasn't it? Chaz. Morph's immoral, white-skinned best friend. He was originally named Stu, and then Morph's dog is called uh, <laughs> Morph's dog is called Nailbrush. I don't remember Morph having a dog. Um, but, no, neither do I. I mean, I remember my 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 cousin called his daughter Ellis E double L Y S, which is quite hmm. a, which is quite a nice name. But my cousin's second name is Day, so if we say Ellis Day. It sounds like a bit like LSD. <laughs> You know what I mean? And I, my cousin's—I mean, my cousin's never been into any of that um, in his whole life. But uh, yeah, but so I don't. People just don't think about. I don't think people think about their kids having to take these names through their whole lives. And you know that they're going to change their names. Most of these kids, when they get old enough, because in Scotland you can. Yeah. In Scotland, you can call yourself whatever you want. I always remember seeing an interview many years ago with Philip Schofield. Oh right. And yeah. he said that he they wanted to name their daughter Tess, and yeah. he said, but then I thought about it, and I was like, oh, but then she'd be called Tess Schofield, <laughs> and. 
So they didn't name her Tess. But you have to think about these yeah. things when you're naming a child in terms of the surname and how it flows. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's the latest baby names in Scotland. So I hope that's given some of our listeners some inspiration. Yeah, if you're expecting. Yes. Yeah. Or a sort of warning: <laughs> what not to call your kids. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess that wraps up the news for this week. So before we get on to what we're going to talk about this week, and I cannot wait to talk about what we're going to be talking about, let's have a little word from our sponsors. Must say I'm enjoying these evening classes. Oh, me too. I've always loved flower arranging. I've lost the keys. We're locked too. Ah, don't panic. You can easily get in a windy. No, these windies. These are loving design windies. We are talking revolutionary new high security double glazing windies here. Oh, I know where the keys are. Feel safe, be secure. Don't sign until you've seen Living Design. It's a Living Design, design for living. Okay, Greg, so it was your choice this week. So why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about on the Swally today. So this week I've chosen T2, not Terminator 2, uh, T2 Train Spotting, uh, sometimes called Train Spotting 2, the sequel to the 1996 classic, obviously, which we reviewed, I think, way back in 2020, potentially, a long time ago. Mm. Uh, it was released in 2017, uh, tw- about 21 years after the first film came out. Um, Ewan McGregor, Ewan Bremner, Johnny Lee Miller, and Robert Carly were back, reprising their characters as Renton, Spud, Sick Boy and Begbie, respectively. Uh, Shirley Henderson's also back as Gail. Uh, Kelly MacDonald comes back as Diane. James Cosmo is back as Davy Renton. Uh, Mr. Myth. Hugh McGregor's Da, uh, written by John Hodge, who wrote the first uh, Trainspotting movie, and also Shallow Grave, directed by Danny Boyle, again, who directed Trainspotting uh, in 1996, and also directed Shallow Grave. Uh, based loosely on Irvin Welsh's follow-up book, to train spotting porno. You know, it tells a story of uh, Renton returning to Edinburgh after 20 years reconnecting with his former, his old pals who are all at, at different sort of stages in their lives, all in their late 40s. It's a, uh, I mean, when, when, this, when this came out, I had a bit of a problem with it, I think, because I was such a big fan of porno. Uh, and this there's elements of uh, quite a lot of elements of porno in it, the book, um, but it's its own story, really. But I have to be honest, the more the more times I've watched it in the kind of five years or so since it was released, the more I've en- the more I've come to enjoy it. And I, I don't know if it's because I've obviously aged five years in that time, and you know, um, not a million miles away from the age that the guys are supposed to be in the film. But watching it this time for the the podcast, I really, really, really enjoyed it, and and. And it resonated emotionally a lot more with me than it has on previous viewings. But how did you find coming back to it? Yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly, Greg. I mean, we are both massive Irvin Welsh fans. I yeah. think that's one of the, the the big reasons we connected. And obviously, we've spoken about our love of train spotting, and we reviewed train spotting in previous episode available wherever you get your podcast porno was a book that i read as soon as it came out mm-hmm. and devoured it and loved it and i think i've read porno maybe three or four times yeah me too. and I, I i genuinely loved the book so when i'd i'd heard that they were making train spotting 2 i was very excited but also you have to be worried mm-hmm. because train spotting is a film we hold 
so dear. Yeah. And it's part of our youth and something we grew up with. And I was extremely worried. But when you have the original cast and Danny Boyle on board, you're thinking they can. And, and John Hodge, of course, who hugely made the script. I, I think I'll, I'll come on to it later, but I, I read an interview with Danny Boyle speaking about the script. And you have to have confidence in it and think this is, this is going to be OK. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not going to fuck this up. Surely they're not going to fuck this up. And so coming into T2, I I watched it and I couldn't I couldn't see it at the cinema because I was living in Dubai at the time. And obviously yeah. a film like this isn't going to be released there. No. So I had to wait for it to be available for obviously legal mm-hmm. digital download. Yes. And I digitally downloaded it and watched it. And I'll be honest, the first time I watched it, I was a little bit disappointed. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it quite hit the mark and... I don't know. I thought it was good, but not great. And I've watched it a few times since. So I think watching it for the Swally was the fourth time I've watched it. Mm. And I would say every time I have watched it, I have enjoyed it more and more and more. And things I didn't like about it originally, I now absolutely love. Yeah, And I think it is a film, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of about getting older. And and this is what this film was about, about getting older and about kind of lamenting your youth and about time moving on. Yeah. Watching it this time, yeah, I I absolutely love this film. It's so good. It really resonates with me. Uh, So yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, but I'd be interested to hear what you think of it i mean i'm the same as you when it comes to uh, porno the book (laughs) Um, it's it's gonna be be one of those conversations i remember because i I, we spoke about it on the train spotting podcast i had read the book of train spotting not long before the film came out you know i was in my last year at school so the movie was incredibly important to me i was just i was 17 i was about to turn 18 about to leave school about to go off and go to college and all that sort of thing and the characters that are in train spotting they've kind of been with me since i was that age because obviously everyone else wrote glue i think around 2000 which they kind of i think mm. a, a, a few of the train spotting characters kind of cameo a little bit in the early chapters of glue and then in porno porno is a it's a, it's a little bit of a sequel to glue in some respects as well um mm. just with the, the characters and then a few years later uh he brought out sick uh, Skag Boys, which is kind of prequel to Train Spotting, and then as recently as um, well, two th- I think about 2017, but at the same time as this came out, he brought out the Blade Artist, which just focuses on um, Begbie's character, and then Dead Men's Trousers, which I actually reread just uh, just uh, last week, um, mm. and that's a book that gets better on repeat reading. A bit, a bit like this film. So the characters are they're, they're very ingrained in my sort of consciousness. And I when I when I, when I came into this film for the first time, you know, when I I mean I've gone back and read the kind of train spotting Mark Renton universe, whatever you want to call it, books a number of times. When I see Renton in my mind's eye, I don't necessarily see you and McGregor anymore. When I mm. see Spud, I always see you and Bremner. And when I <laughs> And when I, when I read Begbie, I always see Robert Carlyle. Johnny Lee Miller is sick boy. I kind of do and I don't. And mm. I don't think that 
how Sick Boy is portrayed in this film is particularly faithful to how he's portrayed in the subsequent books. But I don't think there's, you you could never root for him if he was. You know, that character in a book is very different to seeing a character like that on a screen. It would be a villain, really. And in the in the books, he's yeah. sort of an anti-hero, so he's a bit more sympathetic in this. But there are certain elements of his performance that I only really noticed for the first time watching this again for the podcast today. So that there's something that Irvin Welsh says that uh, writes that Sick Boy does when he's being confronted or being challenged, and he sticks his chin out. You know what I mean? He sort of, you know, and mm. because he's famously he's not like a violent guy in the stories. He's he's devious, but he's not like a fighter. He's kind of the opposite. But he, you know, if he's sort of squaring up in a in an argument, he juts out his chin. And I noticed when I was watching this for the podcast that John Lee Miller does that quite a lot in certain <laughs> scenes you know like when he when he's arguing with uh with uh, Renton and when he's being um when he's arguing with Victoria and stuff because he's he's on he's always on felt Victoria Veronica sorry because he's you know he's always taking cocaine and stuff and his jaws like locked in this indignant expression a lot of the time so yeah so but b- b- because of my you know the way that those characters have been a big part of my life growing up when I went into this for the first time you know, I had probably unreasonable expectations, I think. And because of my love, mm. my love for the book of porno, <laughs> um, I always, you know, I, 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 yeah, I think I would still love to see that on screen somehow. I don't know how you could, I mean, it will, it will, it will never happen I, now. But, um, no. <laughs> it will never, it will never happen now. But um, so, you know, I think that's why I found it quite, dis- I found it quite disappointing the first time. And I think because I had those unreasonable expectations, a lot of the subtleties and the nuances of the film were kind of lost on me the first, probably the first, the first couple of times I saw it, you know? Mm. No, I would agree. I think what I like about this film is it's not a cheap cash-in sequel. It's a grown-up version of Trainspotting. And that's yeah. what we all kind of needed. And even subtle things, like you say, I, I never really noticed the first maybe couple of times i watched it but i've noticed the last twice i've watched it in terms of there's no sick boy renton and begbie mm. it's mark simon yeah franco yeah spud's the only one and he even makes a point of when he's signing the checks with veronica later yeah. on she calls him daniel, um, daniel yeah. and he says oh no everyone calls me spud yeah because he's the character that's kind of hasn't evolved and grown up in a way the rest of them well, they have and they haven't, but I did find that a good, a, a great point in terms of its mark, Simon, and even my notes, I, I kind of caught myself writing Sick Boy and scrubbed it out, Simon, Yeah, it, it, Simon's his name. And it's a film that is littered with callbacks to the original, but yeah. it doesn't beat you over the head with them. You could almost watch this film having not seen the original yeah. and still kind of understand it and enjoy it. You wouldn't appreciate it as much because there are so many callbacks and you need to, and it doesn't rely on nostalgia and callbacks so much, but well, as, as Simon points out in the film you know you're a tourist in your own youth and that sums up the film for me as an audience we grew up with this film but it doesn't it relies in a way on nostalgia but not so much because it does bring you back like with the music for example the music is very modernized but they cut back i mean it's beautifully put when mark goes to his uh, his dad's house and he's in his bedroom and he puts on the iggy pop record and he just plays the first drum beat of lust for life and has to put it off yeah that's that's beautiful he doesn't he doesn't want to go back there 
yeah. doesn't want to go back to that time. And I think it, it just it just elevates the first film so much. It's a beautiful sequel. And I I just grown to appreciate this so much more than when I first watched it. Where it does kind of call back to the first film, and it, there are some instances where it's it's incredibly subtle. Um the one mm. the one that springs to mind early in the film well really early in the film when the opening credits are on and it's showing the young boys playing football in the street mm. and I get you know I guess so you know who's meant to be who it's got like Ewan McGregor's name comes up in front of one little boy the, the camera freezes for a second and when it's Spud's turn when he lets the goal in when the boy lets in the goal mm. it does it in exactly the same way as Ewan Brenner lets the goal in in the opening of the first train spot in the film. So, you know, they, those little touches in the bit in the nightclub after Begbie's been chatting up the girl and he goes off to the toilet, but on his way there, he kind of spits out a drink. And it's, you know, it's the same way as he spits out the beer in Renton's flat yeah. in London. Get some decent fucking beer and all. It's, yeah, just those... Those little kind of... So it's not too heavy-handed. It's not going to beat... Like you said, it's not beating you over the head with the self-referencing sort of thing. But just these little subtleties, just to let you know that these are the characters that you saw 20 years ago, you know, and and they're going to have changed, but they're still these people, they're still the people that you came to see. To go back to that point, what you mentioned in terms of the opening, because that is the the opening of the original train spotting yeah. when the the character's name flash up in the when they're playing five aside mm-hmm. and it flashes up. As you say, Ewan Bremner lets the goal in, it comes up spot. Yeah. And, you know, whereas in this film it comes up, Ewan Bremner. Mm-hmm. And again, you see a little blonde, curly-haired kid, which yeah. you know is Tommy. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't come up, obviously, with his name, because, obviously, Tommy's passed away. And I thought that was just so beautifully done mm-hmm. in terms of a nostalgia aspect. But just, just oh, just that brings me in straight away. Mm-hmm. So well done, so well crafted. Yeah, yeah. The other, the other, the other shot that I really like is when Renton goes to see his dad, and they're sitting at the table, mm. and there's the shadow of his. Obviously, his his mum has has passed away. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's established that Renton wasn't there at the end, and he wasn't there for the funeral. So you know, he's, I guess you know, he's he's, he's going to be carrying some guilt about that. But there's the shadow of his mum next to her chair, and it's exactly the same. It's shot from the same angle as the when you see him at the table with his mum and dad in the first film when he's a lot younger you know and I did not pick up on that and the first time I watched it right. I think it took the third time I watched it that I yeah. actually noticed the the silhouette of her sitting there yeah. and it just made me appreciate it so much more seeing her there yeah but you know to, to your earlier point like the film is the film is really all about renewal um, and you know in all the all the kind of exterior shots that you see, there's buildings being pulled down or haven't been pulled down. So like when you see the exterior mm. shot of of Simon's flat and around the Port Sunshine pub, and even like the end credits, the end credits are have like the, some of the towers in Sight Hill and the Red Road in Glasgow getting pulled down over the credits. So it's all about renewal and wiping i guess sort of wiping away the past wiping the slate clean starting again you know for all the characters and but i think there's there's a kind of sadness to it as well you know apparently hmm. I, I was watching a conversation between ewan mcgregor danny boyle johnny miller and robert carlyle and they're talking they were talking about the scene where renton kind of comes clean to simon that actually he's getting he's going to get divorced 
he'd had his, his little heart attack and he's got 30 more years and he, he doesn't know what to do, you know, what he's supposed to do with 30 more years. Um, yeah. and, you know, Danny Boyle says that John Hodge had had a bit of a health issue at some point before he wrote the script and he said, I really felt that that's kind of John speaking, you know, it's kind of coming to terms of being like an older guy and, you know, you know, if you've got 30 years left, what, you know, what are you going to do with your, what are you got to do with your 30 years, you know, I mean, after you retire. That's so interesting you said that because I didn't see that interview. Yeah. But it does connect the dots for me because I did watch an interview with Danny Boyle and he said that he had obviously wanted to do this film Mm -hmm. and John Boyle had written a script for it and they sat with Irvin Welsh. And he'd written a script basically based on porno. Yeah. And they sat down and they were like, yeah, we can't really film this. It's it's not going to work. It's not suitable for a film. For listeners that maybe haven't read the book porno, um, basically, it is train spotting too, but rather than the scam they pull, they they shoot pornographic films in Simon's auntie's pub, <laughs> and um, so they can't do that on film. There's no way it's going to be Zach and no. Miri make a porno. So John Hodge effectively said, "Right, leave it with me," and he went away. And within two days, he came back with the T two script. And when Danny Boyle read it, he said, "This was just like a." huge like personal version of the film that that john hodge had written about aging and about health scares and things like that and that's what made it to the final film Mm -hmm. so it's funny connecting the dots that the interview that you've watched and the one i've watched that makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. in terms of how this script actually came about and yeah i I didn't realize that about john hodge's health scare so it does make sense though yeah, Danny Boyle doesn't go into any detail on it. He just said he and he said if, if they thought that, that John had had a bit of a health scare at some point before he wrote the script. But it, it's a good interview because Danny Boyle asks all the actors if they went back and watched Train Spotting before they started shooting T two. Mm. And Johnny Lee Miller said, "Yeah, he said I did." And Hugh McGregor said, "He said I did." He said, "But what I did was I downloaded it to watch on the flight from America to Edinburgh." He said, "So you know, when the plane was quiet, I settled in, I put it on." He said, "I realised that I downloaded the American version that's dubbed." He said, so he said, so it wasn't quite, he said, I was really looking forward to it. He said, I thought like, this is like a moment for me because it's been so long since I watched the film. He said, arguably it's one of the movies that set me off in my career with my early films and things. He said, it was, it just kind of took the wind out of it a little bit. But Robert Carlyle said an interesting thing. He said that, he said, I didn't go back and watch it. He said, because he said, I've kind of been living with the character of Begbie since we shot the film. He said that like, Every single day, pretty much, somebody quotes a line back to me or, or, or references it. He said, you know, he said I've got people imagine. showing. He said they've got people showing me like Darth Vader with like Begbie dubbed over. Remember that was going about <laughs> like the scenes from the first Star Wars film. Um, I think they did it with Begbie and they did it with uh, Brick Top from Snatch yeah. as well. I saw that a couple of times. He said so. He said that you know. He said that he said getting back into the character. He said that. It wasn't that difficult. He said, but he said, when I read the script, he said that all these characters are exactly where I would want them to be at the start of the film. He said, he said obviously, he said, Begbie's in the nick where he should definitely be, you know. Uh, Renton's carrying all this guilt from what, from ripping off his mates and then coming back to Edinburgh and stuff. Simon's still scamming away, unfortunately.
unfortunately, Spod is still uh, an addict. But yeah, it's uh, it's a good interview actually. And, and Danny Boyle says about the script. He said because he said we would only have done it if we could have got the original cast back. And he said that original script that was closer to the to porno. He said I knew that if I gave it to you, you guys, you probably wouldn't want to do it, or you wouldn't all want to do it. He said when I got the script. Um, for T2, the the one that we filmed, he said, he said, I wasn't worried about giving it to you guys at all. He said, I knew. He said, they said, I know it sounds arrogant. He said, but I knew that when we gave you the script, you would want to do it. And obviously, he was, he was right because everybody comes back that was in the first film. Everybody that survives the first yeah. film came back to be in it. I mean, he, Kevin McKidd gets a credit because obviously they show some scenes of him from the first film, don't they? Yeah, but I don't know. You can't have the film without the, the core four as it is, yeah. you know, effectively. And I, to speak about them, I think we've spoken about the actors quite a lot mm. on the Swally in the past in terms of other things that they've been in and what they've done since but to speak about the core four in terms of why they would come back so Renton obviously he's been living in Amsterdam for what 20 years now mm. but we don't know he's a bit ambiguous about what's been going on with his Dutch wife and he says he has kids but he doesn't have kids mm. and he, he has a heart attack at the start of the film and on the treadmill and but what brings him back to Edinburgh because I get the feeling it's not that his mum has just died because that was what I initially thought was the reason that he came back for, but there's no funeral or anything. So has he passed previously or he hasn't come back for the funeral? He's come back because is it because his life's fallen apart and because his wife's left him because he feels the guilt and because he's come back with the money for Simon. Yeah. So he's, he's obviously still feeling guilty about it. Is it a case that guilt's got too much? His marriage is falling apart. He's had a heart attack. He's having a midlife crisis. Has he thought, yeah. I need to come back. I need to go and see my dad. I need to go and make amends with Simon. Because he does go and see Spud first, but then he goes to see Simon with the money. So he's gone with a yeah. purpose. Has Why has he come back? Well, I, th- I think that's the thing that the film does. It, it highlights more than it was highlighted in the original film but it's certainly in the books it's a big theme of the book is that like Mark and Simon are best mates or they were best best mates like all their lives you know what I mean until until the events of the end of the at the end of the first film you know and I think I think when when your life is is fucking not where you want it to be and things are going wrong you do kind of go home and or you go to you go to your people, right? Um, you know, his people are in Edinburgh. His dad's in Edinburgh. His, his old friends are in Edinburgh, the people that he grew up with. And that's where he, that's why he's gone back. That's what I kind of took it. That's how I interpreted it anyway. That, um, you know, his, his life's going to pieces and he's decided to kind of go and try and reconnect and take stock and evaluate. And I mean, fair play to him. Obviously, he goes to see Spud first, mm. which would make sense because Spud's the easiest one to make up yeah. to and kind of make amends with because he left him the money yeah. in the end of the first one and that is a wonderful scene to speak about Spud and yeah we'll call him Spud because he is Spud mm-hmm. in this film he has possibly the biggest kind of first laugh of the film when he's talking about daylight saving yeah daylight savings time but also I mean it's a terrible thing he's talking about he's talking about how his life's fallen apart and why he's gone back on the skag but it's all because of daylight savings time in one morning I get to work and gets fired for being an hour late and then I'm an hour late to the DSS to explain why I lost the job. And an hour late to appeal against losing my benefits. And an hour late from a work-focused interview. An hour late from a supervised visit with Wee Fergus. And late again at social services to explain why. Eventually I let on to it. It was the clocks. Go forward. One hour. British summertime, they calls it. It wasn't even warm. I was still wearing a jumper. 
happens every year, Mr Murphy. How is that supposed to know? I've been on Skag for 15 years. You know how it is. Daylight isn't exactly high on your agenda when you go to Habit. It's for farmers and that. Dudes, you need a ten of livestock. It's not for junkies who need to score. So that was me. No job, no money. No access to wee fella. And then you went back on the heroin. My best friend. Actually, only friend who's never left us. Yeah, I, I really like how you and Bremner portray Spud in this. Because he's, in the first film, he's, you know, he's a bit of comic relief. But in, he's, he's a, he feels like a much more self-aware character in this one. You know what I mean? Like, he knows exactly what his problems are, you know? And yeah. he knows how he's how he's portrayed and stuff. And in, in that interview... Ewan Bremner wasn't there. He was away filming something else in that interview. But Danny Boyle talks about... Because Ewan Bremner had famously played Renton in the play of Trainspotting for quite a for, for quite a while. And Danny Boyle said he was a bit nervous about offering him spuds because he thought that um, he might take it a bit badly that he wasn't being offered Renton. He said, but he... You know, he said he absolutely was a total gentleman about it and obviously owns the character in a in a in a, in a, in a big way and you and you and Bremner said as you and McGregor said as well he said I was a bit nervous about about meeting you and Bremner for the first time because I kind of felt like I was take stealing his role he said but you could have been could not have been nicer you know he just put me completely at ease but yeah his, his portrayal of Spud in this is 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 great and you I really feel like of all the characters Spud gets the happy ending at the end of this film you know what I mean? Oh, this is Spud's film. But that this the, the scene you're talking about with when Renson goes to the Spud's apartment, the the scene of him leaning back in the chair and the chair falling off the top of the flats. It's I mean, this is the sort of stuff that Danny Boyle does that you don't really see a lot of directors doing. You know what I mean? Mm. This kind of imagery and uh, it's. It's a brilliant, and then like you know, they you and McGregor just kind of slipping under, just just kind of slipping under him and, and catching him before he lands on the carpet. It's really really good. And then it's instantly just you're snapped out of it by Spud puking in the bag yeah. and Renton ripping it open. And oh, for fuck's sake! It's, yeah. <laughs> it's the instant drama, and oh my god! And then just kind of comedy element just pulls you back out of it, and yeah. And then Spud going mental at Renton. Mm. But then straight away, Spud's character just switches. He's like, oh, well, you know, oh, I'm going to be hanging about with my best mate here. Yeah, yeah. Testament to his acting ability, the character of Spud, that he's just, that's the way Spud is. He's, mm. He genuinely decided that that's it. I'm going to kill myself. He's done his suicide note and written it in the final demand gas bill. Um, (laughs) But then Mark appears at his mate's ear. He's like, no, that he hasn't seen for 20 years. He's like, oh, no, it's fine. I'm I'm not going to kill myself for a few days. Not much fear here. No, he's 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 really really good in it. And the the scenes with him and Veronica are great. Oh. You know what I mean? Because everybody's you know, Renton's got his heart set in Veronica. Obviously, Simon does because she, you know she's with him at the beginning of the film. But you know, really, Spud's the one that Spud's the one that could have the relationship with her. You know, like yeah. she's the one. She, he's the one that she wants to run away with her. You know what I mean? And he, you know, he won't he he, he won't do it. But he's the only one that wouldn't run away with exactly. her because he's got Galen Wee Fergus, yeah. Yeah, but that's the thing about he's he's the kind of he's the heart of of the film because Renton is fixing to betray his best mate again to fuck off with her. Simon, this is the thing I noticed about 
this film and I would watch it back this time. So the scene between Simon and Begbie, the first scene they're in together when Begbie comes into the pub, Simon takes him down to the cellar and originally... The first time I saw it, I because in the book, you know, they, there's a bit of this, and it's and I thought, right, so this is the beginning of his plan to unleash Begbie on Mark. But watching, mm. it, but watching it, but I, I questioned that because he tells him that he's been found in Amsterdam, and he said, "I'll get you a passport, lie low, and everything." And I'm th- and I thought, well, is this Simon actually trying to protect his friend, or is this him trying to buy time to get? Mark to help him with his scam and everything to get the grant for the pub and whatnot. Then he plans to let Begbie loosen them. But when I got to the end of the film, I, I kind of thought, well, but I don't think that is the case. I think he was genuinely trying to protect Mark. I think it changes when, to skip ahead of it, when Mark comes back and unloads on Simon everything that yeah. has happened to him, you know, tells him the truth. Then relationship changes yeah. to a certain extent. I'm getting divorced. You just came back to tell me that? Of course, any misfortune which befalls you is music to my ears. I was supposed to go back and move my stuff out. She owns the apartment. And the children? There aren't any. None? No. So when you said wife, two kids, James and... uh, Laura. Laura, that wasn't strictly true? No. Why'd you lie to me? Because I didn't want to tell you the truth. And the no kids thing? Was, was that a problem? It's none of your business. Yes. It was a problem. It was a fucking big problem, all right? That make you happy? A little bit. Oh, fuck off. But Simon does kind of almost rekindle the kind of childhood relationship with Mark. Yeah. And I would say that's the way that they kind of get it back together towards the end. I do feel like the scene after the... They have stolen all the debit cards from the guys in the Orange Lodge and they're celebrating back at Simon's. And they're talking to Veronica about George Best and Mark's... You know, they're showing footage from an old game. And Mark's like, look, there's no fat people. No fat people there. Like you said, the first McDonald's opened in in the UK, opened in Woolwich in 1974. I've been there. I've been there a number of times. (laughs) I think that could be where I was going with that in terms of that's the... The friendship is almost cemented again. And, you know, the guys are back together and this is old times. And that scene is amazing when they are, you know, you believe that they're both pissed and they're on coke, the way they're acting. And the way that Mark is, you know, up and pointing at the TV and talking to Veronica and explaining to her all these things about George Best. And as you say about, you know, there was no fat people. And (laughs) it's such a good scene in terms of people really believable about being pissed and... (laughs) speaking to someone and yeah. speaking absolute nonsense about whatever comes into their head. Great scene. You, f- you feel like the interaction between Simon and Mark is kind of how they used to interact yeah. when they were younger. You know what I mean? You know, sort of like talking about stuff. You know, when they're, when they're shooting each other with the air pistol and they're holding like a cushion, that, you know, they, they Simon pretends that he's been shot in the eye, you know, and then they're playing foosball together and stuff. And um, yeah, you kind of feel like this is them reconnecting on the level the, on a level that is comfortable for them because it's the kind of basis of a friendship almost from before, you know. One thing I would say about this is that it's 20 years from the original, but mm-hmm. 
the original was always a bit ambiguous because it never actually doesn't take place in 96. No. We established on the, the podcast when we did the original film. However, this very much takes place in 2016 in yeah. terms of you have the, the apps that they use in the phone with the dog face and stuff. And I actually went and looked at the... When they're in Simon's flat, he has a Hibernian strip hanging over the back of one of the chairs. Mm. So... Yeah. That's a 2015-2016 hip strip. I went back and <laughs> <Right>. checked. <laughs> so this is obviously set in 2016. And of course, the trams in Edinburgh, they only came in 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. So definitely mm-hmm. 2016 that this is set. So it's not 20 years before. No, it's it's a bit, yeah. I mean, I guess I've just had to take a bit of poetic license. I mean, the, fil- the, the, the original film seems to cover a longer period of time than is obvious. You know what I mean? They get, when you watch when you watch the original film a few times, you come to realise that a significant amount of time has passed from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. Um, and they were talking in that interview. They were talking about the costumes in the original film and how they purposely didn't make them too kind of period. You know what I mean? So there was no kind of don't know whatever sort of the fashion would have been in the mid eighties. There was nothing like everything was a bit kind of kind of between the cracks is how they described it. You know what I mean? So there's a little bit from different times, you know, like with Mark's kind of skinny jeans and uh, Begbie's Pringle jumpers and stuff like that. You know, it's sort of, they're sort of of a time and not of a time at the same time. You know what I mean? But so, yeah, but I guess I've just had to take a bit of poetic license for the whole the whole 20 year thing because the actors have aged 20 years, <laughs> you know, so. So should we talk about Begbie? Yeah, I think we need to talk about Begbie. What did you think about Begbie's portrayal in this? Again... He's, it's a clever interpretation, you know what I mean? In the books, you know, they, Begbie has become like a total dangerous uh, psychopath over the space of the kind of, the sort of the two most recent books. I don't think Carlyle plays him quite like that. And there's, he, he's quite different to how he, how he was in the, in the first movie, but I suppose... He's supposed to have been in jail for the best part of twenty years, uh, so that's go- he's going to have changed. You know what I mean? And he's, you know, he's when we first meet him in this film, he's staving down the barrel of another five years in jail. So I, th- I think I enjoyed his portrayal of Begbie more this time of watching mm. it, but. The way the character goes, I really wanted there to be a bit of. I guess I wanted them to. I wanted them to sort of make up a bit. You know what I mean? Like the the first time I saw this, when he finally gets his hands on Mark, and Mark falls through the ceiling, and he ends up sort of hanging by his neck, and this, and when when Beg when Begbie goes up and kind of says, "Come on, Mark," and kind of takes his legs, I thought he was gonna. I've sort of come to his senses and be like, "I'm like, I'm killing my best one, of my oldest friends here." And was going to save him. So when he actually starts to kind of pull his legs, yeah. I remember being quite sort of shocked by it. And to be honest, it, it's that part of the film still doesn't sit as well with me as the rest of the movie. You know, I really, I, re- I guess, I really wanted some reconciliation to happen between Mark and Franco. What about you? I'm not sure. I thought it was a bit too comedic. Uh, right, a, a kind okay. of comedic aspect to Begbie in this film. In a few of the scenes, he's still got the menacing aspect, and maybe I need to go and watch the first one again because he is a funny character, but very mm-hmm. evil and sinister. And when you think about the scenes of when he's in his Nissan Micra Tran- with them, um, Trans- transgender well, woman, yes, yeah. exactly. 
there are some funny parts to the character, but this time I just thought it was a bit too much played for laughs and ramped mm. up. A bit more of a comedic Begbie. Still very menacing, and like some of the scenes when he's with Veronica and Spud's flat, he comes across as pretty dangerous. Uh, but yeah. I don't know, just towards the end when he's in the pub and puts down his tool bag, and it's it's almost a bit theatrical and comedic and smashing through the toilet wall it's all very jack nicholson you know here's johnny yeah that's maybe what they were going for i don't know but and of course towards the end when he's got mark strung up and he's loading the shotgun mm. you know would begby not have that shotgun loaded already yeah don't know slightly too comedic begby for my liking but i think it's some of the early scenes when he's in the prison that's amazing when he sat talking to the no, when he's sat talking to the sister and then when he gets stabbed with a knitting needle and he's like oh you've a liver that's brilliant and you see the anatomy book next to him you realize this is the Franco I know he's studied this and it's yeah Mm -hmm. he knows that he's gonna escape and just stab me right here and then he gets out of the hospital and steals the doctor's clothes you're like okay this is Begbie but later on I don't know maybe it's not too comedic like when he finds the Viagra and stuff and in, in the nightclub toilet that's yeah that is amazing that scene in the toilet with him and Mark is just so good What's all this then? Planning a special event, are we, sir? Just keys of tablets, Paul. Remember not to exceed the stated dose. Just keys of fucking tablets before I come through there and find your fucking head out. Alright, fucking calm down. Yeah, and I think Hugh McGregor plays that so well, mm. like the terror when he realizes who it when you know, when he comes up over the top of the, 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 the cubicle and he's he's suspicious his suspicions are confirmed as to who it is and he clamors to get out of the cubicle. He plays it so well. But coming back to what you were saying about Begbie and the kind of theatrical, I kind of you know I kind of take that as when you read the when you read the, his portrayal in the book, he is sometimes sort of intentionally theatrical. You know what I mean? And the and the characters describe him as such. You know what I mean? He's he believes he believes all the stories about him, and you know he he likes to sit back and have somebody tell a story about something he's done, and um, so a lot of that, like when he's when he's in the cellar with um, Simon, and he's like Rah! like that. You know when uh, he thinks he knows where Mark is, and they're going to go to Amsterdam, and he's going to get him and stuff. Um, but I think the scene that really makes the performance with him for me are the scenes between him and his son mm. in June, and especially the last the last scene. You know, after wait, when he's read when he's read the story that Spud's written about them bumping into Begbie's dad in the old abandoned train station in Leith, and he kind of realizes that. He never that he obviously he realizes that his own that his own father was never there. Probably a lot of why his life is the way it is. He in his mind is because of his father, and he saw you know it's a it, you know it's a side of the character that we don't see at all in the first film. That you know he's I've got a son, you know, and I want I don't want him to go to jail for fucking twenty years or however long it's been. And he goes and he he, he he does the right thing. You know what I mean? He goes and he wishes his son luck with his fucking hotel management then. <laughs> Whatever it is, you know. You know, he shakes his hand and, and gives him a hug and then goes out to oh. commit a murder. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh I think it it's it's like the movie. I think you notice more about that portrayal of Begbie the more times you watch it, I think. I just thought I'd come by and say good luck, son. That's all. 
Uh, thanks, Dad. See, it's difficult for me, cos... We never had any of that when I was a boy. That like the uh, hotel. Management. Aye, hotel fucking management. All I had shit and that. Never had any of that. I think you're right in terms of the, the further it got on, the more I liked Begbie. When he's with Spud and he's reading Spud's stories, well, he's yeah. actually getting Spud to read his stories. And he's like, you know, who's going to want to read the shite you've written? Yeah. Something along those lines. But when he gets Spud to start reading them and he's really getting into it, you know, he's kind of horrified at the beginning. You better not have written about me. Yeah. But the more Spud's reading about it and Begbie's doing the actions with the slashes and stuff along with the story. Yeah. And then when he's reenacting the no cunt leaves until we find out what cunt did it. Yeah. That's that's brilliant in terms of the callback and the way it's weaved in. And it's it's well done, but it's not too crassly done. I like that part. Yeah, he's he, he's good. You know, I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I, we've spoken a lot about you and Bremner, but when he's reading that first story, uh, strolling through the meadows, he's mm. like, uh, Begbie's pished his. <laughs> he stops. <laughs> he's like, go on, Begbie's pished his jeans. <laughs> uh, to be fair, Begbie is like, I remember that night. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, you know, I think, and again, there's a lot of ways he is quite a sympathetic character in, in certain moments. And in that moment, you know, you kind of, you think, well, he's, he's actually, he's reasonable. You know what I mean? He, he's looking back on his youth in the same way that all the other characters are, in the same way that, especially, like, Mark is definitely looking for something in his past to help him move on. Um, I think uh, like he and him and Begbie are essentially looking at chasing the same thing. The only thing is, Mark's trying to kind of make re- reparations for things he's done in the past, where Begbie's just he's trying to take revenge for things that have happened to him in the past, you know? But yeah, it's uh, I thought, I, thought I, I like him. I like him as Begbie in this. And I'm interested to see if, the, if this Blade Merchant TV series gets made or not. I know that they're trying to get it made, aren't they? Well, that's it, yeah, because they have spoken about Trainspotting 3, and they have basically said that, no, there will be a TV series of the Blade yeah. Artist. Uh, yeah. yeah, so Blade Artist. And it's going to be Irvin Welsh, and yeah, yeah. it's going to be good to see how that actually pans out, because you have to think, where are they going to mm-hmm. go next with the characters? And obviously we know we've read the books, but if they stick to it, then yeah, I mean, the Blade Artist, it's a great book. Yeah, it's, a, it's good. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, they, I'll, I'll, always, I'll always turn up for these characters, whether it's in a book or a movie or a TV show. You know, I mean, they, the last book, Dead Men's Trousers, I won't, I won't spoil it for anybody who's perhaps intending on reading it, but it feels like, the end of that book feels like, at the very least, Irvin Welsh has probably finished with the characters for a while, maybe, or forever, you know, I, I guess, I guess he, he'll, if he, if he thinks he can, he's got a story for them, he'll come back, he'll bring them back, but... I need to go back and read that again, actually. I did read that, like, the day it came out, I read it in two days. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember enjoying it, but not to put a downer on things, but I was in the hospital with my mum at the time when I read it. Oh, that's right, yeah. So yeah. my mind wasn't really on it, so I kind of need to read it again with a clearer frame of mind, because I, I kind of remember what happens, yeah. but not fully. So uh, I think that could be the next thing I read, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, go back. But yeah, it, it would be nice to see on screen what happens with the characters again, but... I think there was so many good flashbacks in this film and it was so carefully done that the one that really stands out for me was Spud coming out of the raging Spud scene and he comes out the gym and he realises where he is 
And yeah. his younger self and younger version of Mark run past him after them in shoplifting at John Menzies. <laughs> really beautifully done. And then the next scene is Spud going to Gail to get the photographs. Yeah. Uh, and she gives him a John Menzies back. Yeah. Just beautifully done. I, I really like the way it just kind of links in. It's just so subtle callbacks, but so cleverly done. Yeah, and even like the the bar in the Port Sunshine, like the, the, the bar itself, the physical bar, it looks the same as the bar in the volley in the first film. It's that sort of, uh, you know, it sort of tapers down at the bottom, like an upside down kind of triangle Mm. shape. The lines and things, you know, and I mean, it it could be by by that point, I was just looking for these little subtle sort of fan service Easter eggs by that point and just making them up. (laughs) But it did, you know, it did make me think, oh, I wonder if it's, if they've taken the same set or something like that. I was going to ask you something about the Port Sunshine. Mm. So, again, I want you to notice this for the first time watching it for the podcast. But when there's like an exterior Mm. shot, the, it's, the, the land around it seems to change each time. So there's one shot, there's a demolished building right beside it. And another shot, there's the railway line going behind it. You know what I mean? That you don't see and stuff. And, you know, I, I, did you notice that? No, nope, to be honest, no. Uh, yeah. As I, get, as I say, it could just be my imagination. But it, it felt like the surroundings sort of changed each time that we got an establishing shot of the pub. If we're speaking about uh, bars then establishments, then I don't think we've spoken about the uh, the establishment that Simon and Mark end up in to scam bank cards yet <laughs> have to sing a little song. Now, when I first watched this film, this was probably the scene I, I really didn't like. I cringed at this so much. But yeah. however, having watched this again, I absolutely love this scene. It's so funny. I like it, and I'm, I'm with you. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, "Come on, there's fucking no way." <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it was just—it was a sort of a fight of fancy too far, and it's sort of loosely based on a, a much more elaborate scam that Mark and Simon do in the book Porno when they get. I think they clone cards or something like that. They get. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you know. So I guess it, it's it's kind of very loosely based on that, but yeah, just the first time I saw it. I was like, oh, surely not. Because, like, you're going to probably... Well, I don't know. I was going to say you probably upset people who are members of, like, the Orange Order and all that by doing that. You know, but they they might find it quite... They might be able to laugh at themselves or... I don't know. I'm not sure that they would. (laughs) It's quite... They take all that quite seriously. For me, it's the... Watching it now, it's so funny, but it's also the way it's shot because there's a a camera on Mark's microphone. And when he's singing, it's just right in his face. And when you're catching him sometimes singing, it's just right there. And But the bit for me I love is when he goes up to Simon and he sticks the microphone in his <laughs> face when he's playing the piano. And they're both so animated and belts out, no more Catholics. And the, the, the way the whole crowd just join in. And <clears throat> I mean, it's Danny Boyle's direction. You know, as soon as the crowd just cheer once he sings that no more Catholics the first time, they just... Rip roar into the song. It's greatly done. <laughs> yeah, you know, just follow down. It's got like the 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 big fella from um, River City who I think he was on the Karen Dunbar show. He plays the bouncer, doesn't he? I can't remember his name. You know who I'm talking about? He plays the guy. Who, I yeah, do, yeah. I do. I can't remember, but yeah, I know. Some of the camera. There's another camera shot in this in this movie that is it's kind of subtle, but it's really powerful. When when uh, Begbie's having the argument with his son. 
and his son sort of stands in front of his mum and the camera is over his son's right shoulder and then it switches yeah. over to the left for Begbie's line and then it comes back. You know what I mean? It's subtle, but it's, you know, it's really, you know, you really think like somebody's going to hit somebody here, you know? A really good show. I mean, apparently, the, there was some like uh, Hugh McGregor was saying in the interview that I watched the scene when he's on top of the car in the in the um, Castle Terrace car park in Edinburgh, and he's shot. They shoot up through the glass sunroof when Mark's telling the driver, "Go, go, go." He said, um, mm. "He said I never thought we'd get that shot." He said, "But the cameras." He said, I said they're all just really small and light compared to what cameras were not that long ago, like quite big heavy things. You know, I said I couldn't quite believe it, but. I've got a bit of a nitpick about earlier in that scene. So everything Mm. we know about Simon, just based on how he's portrayed in the first film and this film, do we think that he would be singing along to Radio Gaga in a nightclub? (laughs) I just can't see it. His music music tastes just always... Strike as he's just not his music taste. His his taste in general just always struck as being a bit more avant-garde than. Well, earlier in the evening, him and Mark have just had heroin. Oh yes, and then they've gone out for the evening at this nightclub. They've probably consumed quite a lot of cocaine to try and get them Mm. up to go to the nightclub. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about yourself, Greg, but I can't speak for myself, but I have read some stories that when people are maybe on drugs like cocaine, um, they might be a little bit more animated. And if they're in a nightclub, they might dance or cheer along or sing along to music they might not normally be associated with. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm being a bit unkind. Yeah. I think they got carried away in the moment and it makes a beautiful scene of, you know, and I can totally believe that... You know, they've taken the heroin, they've gone in the nightclub. Yeah. Simon's sniffing away, so he's obviously up to his eyeballs on coke. And yeah, he's just enjoying himself and singing along with Radio Gaga. Mm-hmm. All right. Oh, well, we'll let him have it. <laughs> I like the scene where in the nightclub where Begbie is watching the guys dance, watching everybody dancing to run DMC. <laughs> they can't be quite, you know, they're all. So they're all kind of synchronised and all that. But then, but then he sort of gets into it, you know, <laughs> before he goes off, before he goes and sits down. <laughs> oh, fair play. And then he meets a young lady who's very interested in him. But yeah. it's unfortunate that he goes off to the toilet, you know. He could have been away with that lady that night. He was worried that he went to take more Viagra, though, didn't he? Because he, he, yeah. uh, he was worried that he wouldn't be able to perform. But then... All he needed was a bit of violence, yeah. and then he was able to perform. Yeah. So that says a lot about Begbie, and gets into the previous thoughts that we had about him in Train Spotting, mm. which is that Begbie was he maybe a closet homosexual, <laughs> and I, that reminded me of a storyline in Porno I'd forgotten about, which was when um, Sick Boy was sending Begbie gay porn in prison, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and Begbie was. Very upset about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I said earlier on, you you couldn't really portray Simon in exactly the same way as he's portrayed in the books because I mean he's he's a total sociopath um, in the books and like zero remorse about doing anything to anybody. You know, like in in, in Dead Men's Trousers, he essentially breaks up his wife and his brother-in-law for no reason, just because he can do it. You know what I mean? He stitches up his his uh, brother-in-law, and it's just out of malice. It's not for any kind of any sort of personal gain or whatever. You know? No, you're right. I think the characters are 
very different in terms of the film and the book but yeah i, I mean simon's a lot more likable in the film mm-hmm. and i mean we haven't really talked about veronica to be honest and she's a wonderful character and a great it's a great character isn't she yeah, yeah she's fantastic and as you mentioned earlier you know she she has the thread between simon and mark and spud i mean mm-hmm. she she has them all on her web you know i mean effectively she's she slept with Simon once and they have a kind of business relationship. Yeah. She obviously sleeps on Mark that we see throughout the course of the film. And she really takes to Spud. Yeah. And it's a shame that they kind of could make a go of it in a way. And do you think she wants to, but hey, Spud doesn't want to. But hey, the one thing we haven't talked about properly is Kelly MacDonald. Yeah, she kind of fits right back into the, that character. Because she's not really in the first film all that much, really. She's only mm. in it for about maybe 15 minutes altogether. Um, obviously, very memorable scenes that she's in. But, you know, she's... <laughs> she um, You'd feel like that is Diane, kind of grown up. And, yeah. you know, that, that I like the little, the little uh, kind of throwback to the first movie when she says to Mark, she's too young for you. Whereas Mark had said to her when he found out oh, she was in the first film, I'm too old for you. You know what I mean? And it's the sort of shoes on the other foot, so to speak. But yeah, she's really good. The scene with her, she has a couple of scenes that were cut out that you know that you and I watched the other day. Like, there's scenes when she's like Mark goes to stay with her after he moves out of Simon's when he's after you know when he's after Beggy slashed his arm and all that. And the scenes where they're cooking and talking to Mark and stuff. I wonder why, I wonder why they decided to take those scenes out. I'd imagine for time, to be honest, because like the original train spotting was quite a tight, what, 96 minutes? Whereas this is like nearly two hours yeah. long. Yeah, maybe. And I think you had to cut some stuff out of it. And I think they made the right choice, to be honest, like of cutting those scenes out because she's great. And the fleeting appearance she has and the bits that we see, are, you know, yeah. she's, brilliant she's really good and exactly what you would expect mm-hmm. private school diane you know to be growing up to yeah. be um and when she comes out of the office uh and with veronica and mark and you see her in her business suit like the way she's dressed it almost looks like her school uniform from the yeah, yeah yeah it does yeah um, so I thought that was quite a nice little touch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm glad they left out the parts of her with Mark and uh, him staying at hers. It, it's not needed. We should talk about, we're not really spoken about Hugh McGregor. And I think the, the first time I saw this, it feels like he's sort of reacting to the other characters more than, it than you know, sort of leading the film. But, you know, this time there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of like subtleties in his performance as Mark. It's just mm. these certain little lines, you know, like that scene that you were just talking about when they're having the consultancy with Diane, and she says, "This se- this session is free. Uh, this is my rate, or whatever." And he's like, "Oh, that's very reasonable." She's like, "Yeah, that's an hourly rate." He's like, "Oh, <laughs> you know, but it's stuff like that." And like when <laughs> when when him and Simon are kidnapped by Boyle, and Boyle's like, "Do you know who I am?" And Simon's like, "Yep." And he's like, "Well, I don't know who." <laughs> you know, <laughs> just these little. They, they, my, my my favorite line that he has is when Sai early on, and Simon is talking about their friendship and how all the things they did together, and how they took their first shot of heroin together. And he says, "Do you remember we went? We we got our money. We, we went to Swanee's." Swanee's dead now, by the way, and he's like, I'd be astonished if he wasn't. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, he's 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 great in this, and you you, you do feel like there's an element of a sort of homecoming for you, McGregor, because you know, like far and away of the original cast, he is by far the most successful of all of them. He's a proper movie star, you and McGregor now, you know, and it did feel like a bit. It was nice to see him kind of back on with those actors and as that character and you know because even in the first film as much as he does some rehensible horrible things in the first film he's still incredibly likable as Renton and even in this one when he's you know he's blatantly planning to rip off his mate again and run away with the object of Simon's affections and the money they've scammed together you know he's still you still kind of root for him I never thought about that before, Greg, but you've kind of hit upon a very good point, yeah. You're right, the the character of Renton comes back and he's so affable and likeable and getting on with everyone, but yeah, at the end of the day, he's just wanting to scam everyone. Yeah, yeah you're right. And then the, the, the very last scene when he's back in his old bedroom and he puts the record on and it's lust for life, but it's it's like a remix you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, is it the, is the future going to be just a new version of the same old song, or does it represent a new beginning? You know what I mean? The this the same song but done differently. You know, I like it's kind of open to your interpretation. You know, well, you have to wonder is is this going to be Mark going back into his old life and his old ways? Because he's come back from Amsterdam and he's all fine, he's clean, he's sober, and now all of a sudden he's back into taking drugs and sleeping with loose women. Not loose women like Colleen Nolan or anything. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> immoral women getting back into old habits. So is this is, is this it? Is, is Mark going to fall back into old habits now that he's back in his old stomping ground of Edinburgh, you know? Yeah, it's a, I like it. It's just, it's just leave it. It's left open to your own interpretation. I think you know, it's whatever he does, whatever you, whatever you think he's going to do. I think the thing that's left open to interpretation the most is Spud. Of course, his ending in terms of so yeah. he's been writing his book throughout the course of the film, and uh, the end is is beautiful when you get Shirley Henderson saying to him, "I've thought of a title." Yeah. So I presume it's going to be like Spud's Journey or Spud's Luck <laughs> or Spud Spotting or something. Or you know, obviously it's heavily implied it's going to be Train Spotting. But yeah. I thought it was a very lovely ending. Great from Shirley Henderson, and it just kind of wraps up the film, you know, of it being Spud's story. Yeah, yeah, totally. And the Ewan McGregor was saying in that interview, he said that that scene at the end, he said it was emotional seeing everybody together on the screen. He said when we were at the premiere and we watched it, he said, but he said I, he said I held it together until that last scene between Ewan Bremner and Shirley Henderson when they, when you just, the one you just described. I think I've got a title. He said it was. He said it, I just lost it. Then he said I got really emotional and got really teary and everything and they and the other everybody else was like yeah us as well exactly the same <laughs> so the only gripe i have is about the heroin scene yeah it's a, it kind of comes out of nowhere doesn't it to some extent well it doesn't it doesn't because i wonder they they go to tommy's the last place they went yeah. with tommy really the, out in the countryside they go to lay the flowers mm-hmm. and in in the original film they go there they're all sober and straight yeah yeah and then they have the kind of field trip and I think it's Renton's voiceover says, you know, that was the moment we decided to get back on the skag. And they go back and they're at Johnny Swanee's back on heroin. And I wondered if it's a callback because they literally go to the same countryside place. And then the next scene is Simon and Mark doing heroin. And you see Spud 
sat in the corner, rocking away like a little schoolboy, scared. And you know, fair play to Spud. He didn't touch the heroin, doesn't go yeah. back on it. He's clean by this point. And, you know, they only do it the once. Okay, but I, I didn't like it. It was a nice callback. But again, I don't think it was really needed or yeah, you know, the way it was yeah, done. I, mean, I could have done without it, you know? Was there a need for no, it? No, but that's the thing. And I remember the first time I watched this, I watched it with uh, my wife. And she was, like, really disappointed in them that they <laughs> had taken heroin again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because she, 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 she knows the first film reasonably well. She likes the first film a lot. But she was, yeah, she was, like, proper disappointed in Mark and Simon for taking heroin again. So, I don't know. I mean, like, the sort of cynic in me thinks that, you know, because heroin was such a big part of the first movie that maybe there was a scene in there because Danny, maybe they thought that there would be an expectation that the movie would show a bit of heroin abuse or something. I'd, but I don't know if that... I'd, I'd, I guess say maybe that should be being cynical. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it was just maybe a little bit... It could have been perhaps built up to a bit, you know, a, a bit clearer as to why they did it. Because when I watched it this time, I thought it was or maybe they were doing it to kind of pay a bit of a tribute to Tommy, a sort of twisted tribute to Tommy, you know, or something like that, you know. Okay, is it time to put Chainspot in... Th- Two, T2 through the awards. Okay, let's go for it. What's up first? Pub. Which of the pubs did you like the best? <laughs> so there's obviously the Port Sunshine. Yeah. There is that sort of um, brewdog type pub that they're in. I think they're in it a couple of times. Wolf yeah, pack I think it's like the Wolf Pack or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Port Sunshine. It's got the most character, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of for course. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I want to I sit agree. there with the old man. Yeah. Yeah, the copy of the copy of the Daily Record. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, the Jake McQuillan Yartizut Award. There's a couple of possibilities for this one. What did you go for? So I was dithering between the doctor that Begbie mugs for his clothes and when he knocks Simon out near the end of the film uh, when he ambushes them in the Port Sunshine. Okay, yeah. What did um, you have? I went with either Spud smacking Franco with the toilet seat. Yes, that's a good <laughs> one as well, yeah. However, I thought the most teased was Simon uh, smacking Mark with a pool cue after their <laughs> chat at the beginning yeah. because that's a 20-year-old teased, you know? Yeah, <laughs> coming, yeah. And unexpected. Like, in yeah, the, it comes out of nowhere. In, in the book, when... Um, when um, Simon finds Mark in Amsterdam. They're sort of wrestling and uh, Simon gets on top of him and Mark says, that, come on, Simon, we all know you're not going to hit me. And then he just headbutts him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, the Ewan McGregor Award for Gratuitous Nudity. Again, one or two possibilities here. Um, I went with Simon Weir getting his cock out Sim- in, the, in the early scenes of Veronica. Simon Weir, the actor, yeah. Yeah, when when he catches um, yeah. the camera and he finds a camera, yeah. I had the clock, that. yeah. That's yeah. what I had as well. It was more the moments before he finds the clock when he jumps in the bed and his bollocks are just <laughs> swinging lightly for a, a microsecond before it cuts. <laughs> yeah, He's credited, that character's credited as Jailhouse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Weird. Um, okay, the the aptly named Francis Begbie Award for gratuitous swearing. Plenty to choose from here. So I've got two. I've got Begbie's meeting with his lawyer, and he finds out that his lawyer hasn't entered the diminished responsibility <laughs> plea, and he calls him a dot. He sort of spits dos cunt at him. Yeah, dos cunt. 
the Minister's responsibility. If that cunt in the original trial had put in a proper defence of the Minister's responsibility, I could have walked through that door a free man. I think, for you, that the best Did you mention it? Had the Minister's responsibility, and did you mention it? At the hearing? Aye. Did you? I felt it was more concerned. Did we fucking mention it? I can't even believe it. What was the last fucking thing I told you? Mind and mention the diminished responsibility, you fucking dust cunt! I think it would be better if we brought this meeting... Uh, I like that. And I also liked the scene when Simon and Veronica are having a bit of an argument outside restaurant and, si and Veronica storms off and Simon kind of turns round. It's, it's, it's after Mark's left. She's at, he's asked her to keep Mark in the restaurant and persuade him to stay and Mark's gone and they think he's going to fly back to Amsterdam. And he turns to he turns to the people looking at, at through the window and, what the fuck are you looking at? <laughs> um, and I think he, he calls them a cunts as, uh, as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I had those two as my two two personal favourites. What did you go for? Franco. Anything Franco, basically. <laughs> but I kind of wanted to give it to the the whole Mark and Franco uh, part in the toilet with the exchange yeah. that they have when he drops the Viagra. But I actually really wanted to give it to the... When Franco's speaking to Franco Jr., you mentioned earlier, and it's just the way that he delivers that line of uh, hotel fucking management and all that yeah. shite. Yeah, just love yeah. that bit. Made me laugh so much. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Some, some expert swearing. The James Cosmo Award for being in everything Scottish? <laughs> well, I mean, did we give it to Cosmo? He has like two lines, but I gave it to him. I give the Cosmos because I just love the man. I think he's a fucking legend. It's Cosmo um, then. Yeah, it has to be. Yeah. I mean, there's the guy that's in River City who played uh, Gordon Kennedy, who, um, yes. who's been blackmailed. He's in quite a lot. Yeah, the deputy head teacher. Yeah. 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 And Simon Weir's in quite a lot of Scottish stuff as yeah. well. And so is so is um, Stephen Robertson, who plays Stoddart, the lawyer. He's mm. uh, can currently be seen starring with Doogie, uh, Doogie Henshaw in Shetland, which I've never watched. I think we need to do that soon. Yeah, I think we do. I've never watched it. I, and I like Dougie Henshaw, you know. Archetypal Scottish moment. I went for something a bit highbrow, but you tell me what you had first. Running up Arthur's seat. Yeah, that, that'd be a better one. I had, just because, you know, like, obviously I've, I've not lived in Glasgow for quite a long time, but certainly the last sort of five or six years that I lived in Glasgow, it was just regeneration everywhere. You know, and it, that felt a bit yeah. archetypal, a lot of stuff getting knocked down and things. But yeah, you, yours, works. Yeah. yours yours is much better. And then I think, we've, I think we might have kind of given this away already, but the Sean Connery Award, who won the movie? I think we're both in agreement that it's Ewan Bremner, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's Spud's Ewan film. Yeah, he totally. and he absolutely steals. He's he brilliant. He does. He does. And I suppose you know Spud is the role that that kind of made him a successful actor, like a well, like a, a, a film and TV actor. You know, if you look at the stuff he did after after Trainspotting, I mean, he, he's in that bit of the Acid House, which I'm not. I'm not in love with the Acid House. I don't think as a film. He's in Snatch. Great little cameo role in Snatch with. Great scene with Vinnie Jones. He, he he does Black Hawk Down and Pearl Harbor the same year. Black Hawk Down being a much better movie than fucking Pearl Harbor. And then he you know he sort of ends up doing a bit of less mainstream stuff after Alien versus Predator, which is a fucking terrible <laughs> film. It's all a bit more you know he does a bit more under the radar kind of stuff. But I'm looking forward to seeing him as um, Alan McGee in Creation Stories. I think the last film I saw him in was probably Wonder Woman. He's got quite a big part in Wonder oh, yeah. Woman. 
and it, it's it's not. He kind of he he kind of dials it up a bit now and again on Wonder Woman, I think. Uh, so he does, but then it's a comic book film, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, I I don't want to take anything away from the other actors in the film, but he, his mm. performance is so good, and it's Spud's yeah. story, it's Spud's yeah. film. That it's like it's like the emancipation of Daniel Murphy, really, isn't it? He's yeah, yeah, like, it is. He's, he's getting off of heroin. He's he's the one that gets the kind of happy ending. Yeah, really. yeah, absolutely. Ah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, so did I. I loved it. Really enjoyed a bit of T2. That was a long one. So it was. was (coughs) Okay. Well, yeah, that was a long one, Greg. And it was quite hectic, wasn't it? It was quite hectic, yeah. It was quite hectic, yeah. So you know what? After something hectic like that, I think we need a wee rest, don't we? Okay, we do. I think we need to go back to 2002, don't we? Do we? (laughs) Yeah. And curl up with a good book as we look at series one of the comedy drama The Book Group. Ah, I've never seen The Book Group. I've never seen I've maybe seen bits of it, but I know one of the main actors in it, which is bizarre. That was why I was kind of cautious to select this because I know that you do know one of the actors in it. Yeah. So I thought, oh, do, I, do I do this? But I've been I watched it when it first went out and I remember loving it. I haven't seen it since, but uh I really enjoyed it and I've always wanted to do this on the Swally, so I decided okay. Let's do the first series next Brilliant. time. Okay, so for the first series of the book group, I'm in. Okay, well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. If you would like to follow us on Instagram, you can at CultureSwallyPod. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can at SwallyPod. And if you have seen anything in the news or you've seen anything you'd like us to review on the podcast, then you can email us on CultureSwally at gmail.com. And wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple, Spotify, wherever, please feel free to give us a little rating and a review and a subscription. Greg, anything else? Nothing else. That's it. Nothing else. Until okay. Ne- until, <laughs> until next time. Until next time. Hello, Mark. Simon. So what have you been up to for 20 years? I've been in Amsterdam. Nice. All right. What else? Married? Aye. Nice. Dutch woman. Kids? Two. Boys or girls? One of each. <sighs> we mark, eh? That is a chip off the old block. James, actually. And Laura. How about you? I have a son. He's in London with his fucking whore mother. See him? Pretty regular. Currently once every 10 years.